0: Our normal teaching minister, Josh, is out of town this week, so he asked me if I would fill in for him. But we are continuing with the Mark study, so we're just taking right where he left off in Mark chapter 7. You can flip over there uh, if you want to. We'll be there in a moment. But before we jump into the actual text, I wanted to start with an illustration of a movie that I loved, certainly the first time I saw it. And and every time since then uh, that I have watched it in in repetition— it's just a fantastic movie. I did not realize until I was kind of looking this up a few days ago, that it's 19 years old. This movie came out in 2000, which just kind of make me, makes me feel old. But the movie is Remember the Titans. I'm sure many of you in this room have seen it. Uh, it's a famous movie. Walt Disney, uh, Walt Disney Pictures made it. It's Denzel Washington. Uh, is featured as the head coach, Coach Boone of T.C. Williams High School in 1971. Now to set the stage, I should point out that I am, I am referring to the movie. Apparently if you look up the background historical uh, story, it's a little different in some of its details. So I'm going to tell you about the movie version. That's, that's where I'm at today. So Coach Boone, Denzel Washington's character, is recruited to coach the head coaching position of the recently integrated T.C. Williams High School in 1971. Now, Denzel, of course, and Coach Boone were African-American. And the fact that he is replacing the current head coach, who is white and has been there for a long time and is highly regarded as an excellent coach, of course, becomes a period of considerable strife amongst the school, the team, and even the community. Now, racial and cultural biases are the primary source of conflict in this movie. And if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about even if you haven't. If you know the history history of this moment in time, you can kind of pick up on how this might be a period of of conflict for this team. Now, as he comes into the team, almost no one thinks that Boone can can lead his team to success. There's just no way. Either they think that the odds are simply too stacked against him, Or they think that he simply won't even, he won't be able to bridge the racial divide. Some think that he just doesn't have what it takes as a coach. And ironically, some people don't think that he will treat all the players with fairness and equality and that he'll let his own biases cloud his judgment on the field. But whatever the cause, failure is the expectation as the season begins and he starts practicing with the team. Now, initially, Coach Boone does not exactly help his case very much. His demands on his players are extreme. He pushes them hard. Many of them say that he is pushing them too hard, including some of his fellow coaches. He benches players because of their attitude. Even if they might be the best one on the team, he'll, he'll sit them if he doesn't like the way that they're treating other players, regardless of their ability. He refuses to bow to the pressure, the very heavy pressure being exerted on him from many of his opponents, of course many of whom do have racial bias against him, and he even personally experiences threats and even vandalism to his home. And yet with time, and particular, and with particularly cinematic speech at a graveyard in Gettysburg, he convinces his team, and ultimately his school, and eventually really his entire community To unify across this racial divide, and in doing so, the Titans find success in an undefeated season. If you've never seen this movie, it is really, really good. And the character of Coach Boom, played to excellence, in my opinion, by Denzel Washington, throughout this movie, he defies the expectations of others and defines the expectations for his players, his coaching staff, and ultimately for his entire community. I kind of wonder, and I know this isn't the case, but I wonder if Denzel Washington, in, in trying to figure out how to channel this character, if he might not have read from Jesus in Mark chapter 7. Because as we're about to see in this text, Jesus, in many places in scripture, but certainly in Mark chapter 7, defies the expectations of others and defines the expectations for his disciples. So let's just jump right into this. Before we get into the text, I want to set up the, the cultural context, the historical context, and, and basically just tell you where we are. I love the fact that our preacher Josh loves maps, because so do I, so here we go. Um, where we have been for much of the Bible, much of Mark so far, has been in the region of Galilee. He's, he's moved around quite a bit this side, that side, or whatever. But he's gonna make a pretty significant departure from his sort of home base of Galilee for this particular section of scripture. He's gonna move all the way up here to this, this city called Tyre or Tyre. I'm not sure how you would pronounce it, but I'm gonna say Tyre from now on. And it's in a different region of the land. It's, it's, not, it's no longer the, the same zone of, as kind of the cultural Jewish homeland. He's, he's in the outside world at this point. And this is a, a Greek city. It's a Phoenician city. It's a place that is not necessarily defined by the same sort of cultural leanings and biases that he would be used to in his home region of Galilee. So he's going to go up there into a place that's not his home, and he's going to engage a group of people that are not like him. We're going to see in a second that he's going to run into a woman, which even the whole woman-man interacting situation was was very different back then than it is today. So all of these different things are setting him up to to be an outsider in an outside land, dealing with other types of people, okay? And eventually he's going to jump across the lake and be over here in the Decapolis, but we'll get back to that in a minute. So that's where we are. We're in the region of Tyre. And here's what the scripture says in verse 24. Jesus left the place that he was at and he went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence a secret. Now, I love this. You you get the sense at seven chapters in that, that Jesus is becoming popular. And whether or not he's trying to draw a crowd, everywhere he goes, even outside of his homeland region, people know who he is. They're waiting for him because they've been hearing, presumably, the tales of his miracles or, or perhaps they've been hearing of this, this new religious teacher that's got a different way of looking at things. And so when he gets to a place, people are ready. Even people that aren't Jews, they're the Gentile population, right, the non-Jews, they're they're ready to hear what he has to say. They're, they're there, ready and able to receive his messages. But it also means that people are watching him. And that won't necessarily play a huge factor in today's lesson, but as we go farther on, we see more and more of these people that are watching him, checking him, making sure that he's not too far out there. But again, that is not so much for today's lesson. Let's keep going. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. So, why do we get these little descriptive elements about who this lady is? It might seem random, right? Why, did, why does he bother to tell us that she's a Greek? Why does he bother to tell us that she's from Syrian Phoenicia? My understanding of this is that these words, these descriptions of this woman are simply there to tell us that she was not like Jesus and that she was not like the majority of his disciples at this time. She was an other. She was Greek. She was Gentile. There's a very high likelihood that at this point, at least, she was not even a follower of the God of Israel. She was a spiritual outsider, most likely. But she was definitely not somebody that your average upstanding Jewish man would have gone out of his way to interact with. That's who comes to Jesus, somebody else. Somebody that he, as a Jewish man, if he had just been a man, would have been culturally biased towards. Which is exactly, you better believe, how all of his disciples that were following around were probably thinking at this time. So here's what he says to her. She says, can you please cast out the demon? And he says... First, let the children eat all they want, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Ouch. You might be sitting there thinking, like I have, you know, when I've read this passage before, did he just call her a dog? Like, did he just describe this woman and her people as dogs in relation to the Jews who were the children in this story? I mean, that sounds incredibly offensive. And I think it was. I think the whole point was that he was saying something highly offensive. But I don't think he was doing it to offend. I don't think Jesus' motivations were offensive in the long run. I think he was doing this almost putting up a front. I think what he was doing was answering her request of him in exactly the way that his people would have expected him to. Because who was he? He was a Jewish religious teacher a man so far that was fairly upstanding in the community. He was creating a movement. People were following him, wanting to hear what he had to say, wanting to see the kind of things he did, wanting to follow in his steps. And here he goes and he's talking to a Gentile woman and she's asking him to do her a favor. And of course, he should respond, this isn't for you. This isn't for you people. This is really just for my people. And I think if I was there, and I was one of his followers, I probably would have been thinking, yeah, you tell her, Jesus. That's exactly right. The dog's out there. This is, he's not for y'all. He's for the children. And that's what he says to her. But then his, her response is this. She says, but Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Her response, whether she was offended or not, was to continue to press him for mercy on her daughter. I think she was certainly showing faith in his abilities. We don't know the extent of her belief in his power or his divinity, but she clearly understood that this was a man that could work miracles and had certainly done so. And so she, maybe she was beyond the point of being offended. She just wanted to know, can you heal my daughter? I believe that you can, but will you? I know I'm a dog to your sight, to you and your fault. I know that that's how you see us, but can you still heal her? Because e- even the dogs get the crumbs, right? And I love his response next. He says, for such a reply, you may go, the demon has left your daughter. Some verses, some verses that I read actually say things like, good answer. And I think maybe that's the idea that we're supposed to get here. He says this offensive line to her that was the expectation of a lot of his disciples, most likely. She responds with, yeah, but, and he says, good answer. You, you saw what I'm trying to do here, kind of. And he, he goes ahead and grants her request right? She went home and she finds her child lying on the bed and the demon is gone. Here's what I think he was trying to do. I think he was trying to draw out the expectations of others just so he could turn around and slam them down. It's a complete reversal of rhetoric from his his offensive statement to him saying, well answered, what you have asked will be done for you. Because think about who he was. You would have expected him, and certainly the Pharisees and the Sadducees did. And if you remember back in chapter six, he had just been meeting with them and they were challenging him and, and trying to see if they could trip him up. And they would have certainly expected him to toe the party line, which was to reject the Gentiles and to focus all of his time on the Jewish population that he was with. It, it wasn't his expectation that he would, re, it wasn't their expectation of him that he would reach out and try to serve these other people. Certainly the Messiah would not have wasted his time on the likes of them. And yet he reverses his statement. He reverses their expectations. He flips it upside down and says, you know what? Even for you, mercy and grace will be given. Even you get to receive blessing because this is so much bigger than what all of my followers currently expect. And they're about to see more and more so how much this is true. Because here's the thing, here's the main point. We're gonna come back to it several times here. Jesus came to defy their expectations of him and define his expectations of them. Because as he's going through these two stories in this passage, and truly as he goes through all of the gospels, he's constantly showing them by example and often with his very words what he expects them to do. He shows them, and it usually involves him throwing off some preconceived notion of who he is or at least who the Messiah is supposed to be. And then he says... I'm not who you think I am, and I want you to be somebody that you don't currently expect yourself to be. So let's move on, because there's a whole other story here. So Mark chapter 7, verse 31, Jesus leaves the vicinity of Tyre and he went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. So back to the map here, he was somewhere in this area, he, maybe he goes up a little bit, I don't know, he kind of curves around, loops back down, crosses around Galilee and now he's in Decapolis, we've seen him there before, Decapolis simply means the ten cities, but what you need to know is that the Decapolis was a Gentile area. So he goes from Gentile country, which again simply meant the non-Jewish population of the area. He goes through or past his hometown people, and he goes into another predominantly Gentile area. Because he's starting to show us that this whole message of my kingdom coming and my grace and mercy and the love of God, this is not just for the people that I grew up with. This is for a far larger population. This is for everybody everywhere. And then he goes on and we see what happens next. Verse 32. There's He got there and some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. And they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. And I have to think that once again, he gets there and people are already ready for him because he's creating this movement. People have been hearing the stories. They've been seeing him from a distance. They've been hearing their relatives talk about this crazy thing that happened over there. And they want to know who this guy is. They want to see for themselves If he's real. And so he gets there and he's immediately brought someone who is in need of healing. And then this happens. And I think this is more significant than maybe this one sentence gives us. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears and then he spit and touched the man's tongue. I want to pause on the first little line there. He took him aside, away from the crowd. That seems like a minor detail, but think about this. This guy who very likely may have had to beg. We don't really know his situation, but we know a lot of times people that were in these sort of either handicap situations, disability, not able to hear, not able to speak. They often had to beg because they weren't able to do anything in this society at this time. So he was essentially an outcast person in in the culture that he would have had to have been raised in. Jesus pulls this man aside for some quality one-on-one time away from the crowd. Now, just think to yourself for a second here. If Jesus pulled me aside for some quality one-on-one time, would that not be the coolest thing in the world? But, but you've got to kind of ask yourself this question. He pulls him aside to do something that is completely impossible. It is not possible to just do this and restore somebody's hearing and to do this and restore their speech. That doesn't, doesn't happen, right? We know that to be true. Even today with modern technology, it's an incredibly complicated process to try to restore somebody's hearing. And yet he's able to just do it. But he pulls them aside to do something impossible. Now, if Jesus pulled me aside for some quality one-on-one time, what is the impossible thing that he would want to do in my life that I would not even believe what he was capable of doing? Or perhaps that I wouldn't necessarily want him to do? Because this man wanted to be healed, I'm sure of it. But sometimes the things that need to be corrected in our own life are not things that we even want to admit are true in our lives. So if he pulled you aside for some quality one-on-one time, what is the impossible thing that he would want to do for you? Would you be ready for it? Would you be willing for it to happen to you? Maybe, maybe not. I guess that depends on each one of us. But he does the incredible, and it's awesome. Now, what I love about this is that it works, right? First of all, he looked up to heaven, and with a deep sigh, he said to him, That word, which has way too many letters in it. But basically he says, be open. That's what he tells him. That's what he's command. And at this, the man's ears were open. His tongue was loosened and began to speak plainly. This miracle pulls double duty, right? Because he does successfully restore his hearing and his speech, but he does so instantaneously. Now, how many of you have ever seen like video, they've gone on the internet for years and years and years, but have you ever seen a video of somebody that receives the gift of hearing for the first time through some kind of a medical operation, maybe a cochlear implant or something like that? You may have seen these videos, right, where they, they turn it on, I don't know how it works, but they turn it on for the first time, and it's, it's best when it's someone who has never been able to hear before, and they typically have a loved one seated across for them that begins to speak to them, and maybe they're just calling out their name, or maybe they're speaking some kind of a loving phrase, and for the first time ever, this person who has not been able to hear begins to pick up auditory signals. And they usually break down in tears. Everybody does because it's an amazing, incredible experience for them to have something given to them that they had not previously had. But as many of you already know, when that does happen, those people usually don't understand what they're hearing. They just know that they're hearing something. So they receive the gift, but they don't have the understanding yet. It takes a long time to develop the ability to distinguish sounds. We, those of us that can hear perfectly fine, we take that for granted. But if you had never known what sounds sound like, and all of a sudden you did, you would not get it. You would just know that you had been given a cool gift. And you would have to work at it. But that's not what happens here, as far as we can tell. God restores his ability to hear. And he gives them the ability to speak plainly. It's instantaneous, miraculous healing. And I love that because what happens, I think, is a neat spiritual metaphor for us, or at least one that, that I would desire for, for us and certainly for myself, that when we hear for the first time the voice of God, wouldn't it be great if we just immediately received understanding of everything he had to say? And we know that's not usually how it works. We're more like the real person, right, who receives medically gifted healing. We hear the word of God and we respond to it. It sounds beautiful to us, but we don't really get it. And as we grow and as we develop, we we learn more and we understand more the ways of God. But this man, in his one-on-one encounter with Jesus, he receives hearing, he immediately understands, and he immediately gains the ability to testify to what has happened to him. That's a pretty cool story. I love that that's the way it worked in this. But the story goes on. Jesus commanded them, all the people gathered around, I guess, to not tell anyone. But the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well. They said he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. I love that, right? He told them, guys, just kind of keep this quiet. But the more he said not to tell, the more they told. That sounds exactly like all of us, doesn't it? Right? The more we are told to kind of keep something hush-hush, the more we're like, "Oh man, it's a secret. We better go tell somebody." And you got to kind of wonder why did he do this? You know, was this some kind of tricky reverse psychology where he was like, "I bet if I tell them not to tell, they'll tell it even more." I don't know if that was the case or not, but what I do know is that he did have a timeline in mind. We understand that Jesus knew what his ultimate destination was and that that destination was the cross. But the cross had to happen at a certain time in a certain place after certain things had happened. And so it's very likely that that he knew if I just give them, you know, permission to go tell everyone that it might hurry me through my timeline. And I want to make sure that things go exactly according to my plan. So whatever the case, whether he was reverse psychologying these guys or if he was genuinely trying to make sure that he stays on timeline, we know that he had a plan. He knew exactly the steps that he wanted to take and he was going to make sure that nothing was going to mess that up. So everything he does, he does well. I, I love that. Some verses literally says, he does all things well with an exclamation point. Your version may say that. And I love that because from the lips of these Gentiles come these praises to God. Jesus opens the ears and the mouth of a Gentile man, not a Jewish man, and this is what comes from those lips and those, those, those hearts, these praises to God. But meanwhile, as we saw in the previous chapter, if you wanted to flip back and look at that later, meanwhile, the hearts and the minds of his own people, particularly the religious types, the ones on the in crowd, were becoming increasingly closed to him. They were not willing to hear and understand, They were not willing to speak and testify to the truths of God. In other words, his ministry really was initially for the children, but they have begun to reject him. And so now he's moving on to the quote-unquote dogs, exactly like he told the lady before. That's what he's done. And his ministry has now moved on to another group because they are showing receptivity to his message. I want to contrast the shouts of joy And the crowds and the popularity that he's experiencing right now. This is like top tier stuff right now, right? Like things are going so good for him. But as many of you already know, this is not how it goes forever in the story of Jesus leading up to the crucifixion. In fact, in that moment when he is before the people with Pontius Pilate and he's being tried for his crime or something, he is no longer hearing them shout, He does everything well. This is fantastic. He's hearing them shout, crucify him. Free Barabbas, the murderer, but execute Jesus. Those are the things that eventually he begins to hear. And these crowds that once followed him and swelled in numbers, where, where are they? They're gone. But it was all part of the plan. It was all part of the plan. And I'm reminded of a passage just right before this one when Jesus is in his hometown area. And he says, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, from his own relatives in his own home. Isn't that true sometimes? And yet, he came to defy their expectations of him and define his expectations of them. See, what he was communicating to his disciples and and to the Gentiles that were there at the time, he was trying to show them that the mercy of God's love is for everyone in all places. Many of his own countrymen did not yet understand this, and yet he was teaching them, just as he is teaching us today, one example at a time. I want to kind of show you guys how this looks. I I tried to break it down in a simple way. So what are the expectations he defied? So first of all, we've got the expectation of the role. Right? He was proclaiming himself to be the Messiah and the more and more people that followed him, the more that he was sort of being held up as this messianic figure, which simply means the savior. The savior that the Jewish people had been waiting for for a very long time. They thought they knew what to expect. They thought the role of Messiah was going to be a conquering king. They were under control of Rome at the time. They, they thought that perhaps the Messiah will come and he will unite the Jewish people and he will raise up, who knows, an army and overthrow the Romans and we'll get to have a kingdom again. He'll be a king just like David was king. But Jesus says, that's not exactly the role I'm here to play. I am here to be the savior, but I'm not here to do it that way. The expectation of his reach, right? Most likely the people that he initially drew to him were the people that thought that this was all about being a leader for the Jews and of the Jews. But as we go farther and farther and farther, he starts to show that his grace is for those outside the faith as well. And to them, that would not have been considered his priority. But he says, no, you don't understand. You think my reach is, is here with these people, but my reach just goes and goes and goes forever to all people in all places. And there was an expectation of respectability, certainly for this Jewish religious teacher Right, That he would make sure that everywhere he went, he, he did the right thing and he was with the right people. And he certainly wouldn't go to the ir- unrespectable places and talk to unrespectable people. There's no way that an that a, a, a upstanding Jewish religious leader would do that. And yet, who, who do we find him talking to? He goes to Gentile country and he meets with a woman. He goes to another Gentile country and he meets with somebody that would have been on the lowest tier of society. And those are the people that we see him so often reaching out to. And even within the Jewish community, who would he go to? The poor, the destitute, the needy, the prostitute, the tax collector. Those are the people he would go to, the unrespectable people, which defied their expectation of him. And I just gotta say, aren't you glad that Jesus' role is to rule more than just an earthly kingdom? Aren't you glad that it didn't end with that? I mean, what would that have even looked like? Tiny little Kingdom? And then everybody else is what, just squandering? He said, my my kingdom is so much bigger than what you expect it to be. And aren't you glad that his reach is to all peoples and to all the ends of the earth? Because if it wasn't, guess what? We would not be part of this unless you happen to be of Jewish descent. (laughs) Because it wasn't for us, so they thought. But Jesus came to say, no, you got the wrong expectation of me. My reach is so much greater. And my favorite one here is, aren't you glad we have a Savior who goes to the unrespectable places? Because how often have you found yourself in the unrespectable place? How often have you thought to yourself, I am not a respectable person? And if you haven't thought that, I encourage you to think that way, at least every now and then, because that's just the truth. As Jake mentioned earlier, you know, we need to remind ourselves that we are all fallen sinful creatures. Not one of us has gotten it all right. We all fall into the category of being unrespectable when it comes to comparing ourselves with the Holy God. So, if He was not one who goes to those places, we would not qualify for salvation. We don't qualify. We only do because of what He has done by coming to us, the unrespectables, and bringing us into His light. So He defied their expectations, and He defines His expectations of us. And here they are. That's how I'm ending, right? This is the big finish. It's really complicated, incredibly, uh, you've never heard this before. Let me just put it that way. But if you want to cheat, it's in Mark chapter 12, right? Here's this. Are you ready? Here's these expectations for us. Seen that before, right? And I really think it might be this simple. I think we, we complicate it a lot of times with our rules, just like the Pharisees did, right? You got to do this, 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 that. But I think what he really expects of us and is, is that we, number one, is that we love him. Is that we love God. And that our our overwhelming priority in life, single priority, is love of him. And that motivates the second most important thing, which is that we in turn go and love others. That's his expectation of us. It's not that we also be really super inclusive or exclusive of others, that we separate ourselves from them. It's that we go to them. Because God has loved us, he has taught us to love others. That's not what they expected him to do. But that's what he expects us to do. So I want to ask you this question as we kind of wrap up here. Who is the person or are there people that God is trying to get you to pay attention to? Who are, what are the expectations that you think you have on your life or that you think that, that God has for the world that need to be shattered or bent a bit so that you can understand what his expectation of you truly is? What are the biases, cultural, societal, whatever, that you harbor that maybe you don't even realize sometimes that are keeping you from seeing an opportunity to minister to somebody else? Because Jesus was all about blowing through those things and seeking after the people that were most in need. So if that was what he wanted to do, and that's what he wants us to do, who is it that you need to be going to? You can call them the unrespectables. You can call them whatever you want to, but they're just like you. They really are. Who is the person that you need to be showing God's love to? Who is the person that is in need of his mercy? And you can be the one to bring that to them.